You are listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church in Rainbow City, Alabama. More information about our church can be found online at www.12th.co. Good morning. I was about to say it's good to see everybody, but I can't see you, so um, I have done this before. I used to, when I first started preaching, preach to empty rooms, and so this is not a new practice to me, but it is definitely strange. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can up to the, open up to the book of Genesis, is where I'm going to be coming out of this morning. We're going to start in Genesis 1, and we will end up in Genesis 3. The question I want to ask this morning is, what is a man? What is a man? If I were to ask you this question personally, you would probably come to me uh, with a different answer. If I asked 10 different people, they'd give me 10 different answers As I was thinking through this, I thought about when I was younger what I thought a man was. I thought a man was somebody with a beard, uh, big muscles, and they like to fix and kill things. Um, Sometimes both at the same time. But here's the thing, for me personally growing up, I didn't have a beard for a long time, couldn't grow one. Um, I thought that this made me less of a man. I couldn't fix things. Um, I still can't fix things. I have to look things up on YouTube uh, to learn how to fix these things. My wife is probably at home laughing right now. Um, I do not like to kill things. I like to fish. Um, If you want to take me fishing when all this is over, I'll gladly go fishing with you. But I do not like to kill things. One of my favorite stories was um, when I was growing up, I went deer hunting with my father. Uh, My dad was like the epitome of like culture's manly man. He he was... um, in a tree stand on the other side of the property, and he let five deer walk so that they could walk onto uh, where I was sitting in the tree stand. And the first time I was asleep, and the second time I didn't shoot because, well, the, the mama deer had babies with her, and I didn't want to like, do that because I would be sad if I lost my mama. And so that's just not me. Um, and so for a long time, I struggled with like this personal identity of, am I really a manly man? Like, am, am I, like, into this thing like I never played football because I didn't like the idea of getting hit um, and just to be honest like I like the way I look right? I mean I like the way to dress nice I like shoes I mean that, that's it's so according to cultural norms like I'm a man but I'm not the manliest man like I like sports but you know it's just it's just one of those things I struggled with you know what I'm saying like I, I really struggled with this idea of who am I who am I as a man and so As I was reading the scriptures, though, and as I was growing up in this, I went to this biblical manhood conference as a student, and this guy said something that just completely just revolutionized the way I think about manhood. And the way that he said it was, men bring order to chaos. Men are meant to bring order to chaos. It's not about how much you can bench press or how fast you can run or what kind of sports you play. Men bring order to chaos. The chaos, and he pointed to Jesus Christ, who came into the world and literally healed people of sickness, who, with one word, stopped the storm. With all of his might, he went to the cross and gave up his life to stop the chaos of sin so that we can be restored. And he said, Men live like Jesus. Men live like Jesus. So here's the thing, in a, in a world of broken cultural norms, in a world of where we are constantly asking, as a man, who am I? How can I be more of a man? We need to challenge ourselves to say, men live like Jesus. 
He is the greatest example of a man that we have. He literally came as a man in human flesh. Men live like Jesus. Now, women, teenagers, children, before you log off this live stream, um, because you're sitting there saying, oh, but this doesn't apply to me today, it does apply to you. Here is the thing. God designed the family, man and fe- male and female, for a specific purpose. This is God's design. So if we are to obey the Bible, we have to obey what the scriptures say about manhood and womanhood. We need to realize that when we obey God's design, humanity flourishes. Society thrives. Families succeed. Marriages keep going. Families are alive in the love of God when we obey God's design for our marriages and for society. In our culture, these things are falling apart. Humanity is not flourishing. Society is falling apart. Marriages fail. Families are falling apart. So biblical manhood matters to both men and women because when biblical manhood is thriving, society is thriving. So that is why this matters to you. So I got three points. I want to talk about man's purpose, man's struggles, and man's redemption. All right. So man's purpose is simply this dominion fleshed out in headship. We see this in Verse 26 of chapter 1 of Genesis, this is what the word God says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God gave man a purpose of dominion. Now when I say dominion, what I mean is simply headship. And when I say headship, I, don't, I, I was struggling with this and I literally last week told Thomas right before we left the gathering last week, I was going to say that men were created to lead, but then I realized that's not really good language because women can lead. I know women in this church that are some of the best leaders, but here's the thing. In the scriptures, we see that men were created for headship. In uh, 2 Corinthians, um, in 1 Corinthians 11, um, verse 2 through 6, this is what it says about headship in the family. He says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions as I delivered you. But I want you to understand that every man, that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays over or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head was shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head or let her cover her head. For a man ought to cover his head for since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. In that passage, there are some societal norms there that Paul is speaking to, but he is laying out something that goes back to Genesis that points to man as head of the wife, or man as headship, this leader of the family. How is this even fleshed out? It's fleshed out in Ephesians 5, 23 through 32, when he says, for the, woman, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and his himself its Savior. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, without any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves him wives loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. When man is functioning as the head of the home, as headship, as this word, as he is leading in the example that God has placed him, he is reflecting Jesus Christ. He is reflecting our Lord and Savior. He is reflecting the one who has came and given his life up for us. And in the same way, he should do the same for his wife. This is not meant to put women down. No, in all ways, it is meant to elevate women. It is meant to elevate women because when woman was created, as we see in Genesis chapter 2, as Thomas talked about last week, she was created out of the man's side. They are equal in stature. They are equal in the sight of God. But God has given men the special responsibility of headship, of having dominion. And not only dominion in the home, but dominion in society. Headship in society. Men should be leaders in our society. They should be leading in our culture. They should be leaders in the church. They should be rising up to take leadership roles. This is not something that we should just be scared of. Men should run head just first into leadership, and we should lay down our lives for this behalf. Now here's the struggle though, sin brought relational divides with God and with others. Now if we go to Genesis chapter 3, it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now most of us in this culture, we know this story, we grew up in this. But if you read Genesis 1 and 2 from this lens, you sit there and you think, man, there's this new character that's introduced that is not like man and woman, that was not created in the image of God. It just literally says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. That should make us nervous. That should make us wonder, who is this character? He continues on, he said to the woman, the serpent said this, did God actually say, you shall not eat any of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, she is referring back to God's command at the end of Genesis chapter 1, where he tells them, do not eat of this tree. In Genesis chapter 2, he also tells them, do not eat of this tree. This tree will lead you to death. This tree will cause you to die. And Eve is echoing the command of God. But listen to what the serpent says. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I had commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Right here we see the most heartbreaking passage outside of the death of Christ. This is the moment that everything went south. This is the moment that all was broken in society. This is the moment that man did not practice dominion. This is the moment where sin brought relational divide. And that's the first hurdle, the first struggle that men battles is sin that brings relational divide with God and with others. That brings relational divide with God and with others, particularly with woman, particularly with woman. What's so interesting to me in this passage is that the very first question in all of scriptures is here. God looks, at the man, looks for the man and he says, where are you? Now he knew where the man was. He knew where the man was hiding. But here's the thing. He said, where are you calling out? Because that relationship had been broken. That relationship had been broken. And not only that, when you look and see what happens, the man says, hey, listen, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I hid myself because I was naked. Then God says, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of that tree? And he says, it was this woman you gave me. Immediately threw his wife out in front of the bus. Immediately threw his wife out in front of the bus. And this is the first relational divide, and this should break our hearts. This should make us see that this is not the way that it should be. Our culture is not in the way that it should be. If you've been in any relationship, dating, married, you know exactly what I'm getting at. Like, you know that relational divide. That relationship divide still fleshes itself out today, even in our homes. Sometimes on Sunday morning on the way to church, man and woman, we bicker and we are divided. We are not always that beautiful picture of one flesh. I found this about very early in my marriage with my wife, Ryan, and I, when I said two fateful words to her when she was mad at me, calm down. When I said those words, calm down, boom, division, because you best bet that she didn't calm down because that doesn't work, right? And so what happens is, is that brings even more relational divide. Even in that, this is that moment where relational divide came between man and woman because of this moment. So every time we have conflicts with our wives, every time we have conflicts with our girlfriends or with our husbands or with our boyfriends, what happens is, is we are fleshing out this moment where relationship divide came into mankind. Now how does this sin, particularly in relationship divide, flesh itself out even more so into man's life? Uh, the first thing I got is dominating autonomy. In verse 16, he says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. But listen to what he says. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This right here is talking about the relationship divide between man and woman. Right here, flesh itself out that woman's desire is no longer going to be to submit to her husband. She's going to want to be in the husband's position, but man shall rule over her. 
Not have healthy dominion over her, but rule over her. Not lead in the example of Christ, but rule over her. Ultimately, when man took the fruit, he was lusting after autonomy. He wanted to be his own. He seriously said that my way is better. And when Adam and Eve took of the fruit, they said, we are better gods than God is. And when we sin, we are saying the same exact thing to God. God, I'm a better God than you are. God, I'm a better God than you are. And so we, even in ourselves, lust after autonomy. We think that we can solve problems on our own. That especially as men, we fix things. We fix problems. Brothers, you are not your own. Sisters, you are not your own. We belong to God. Whether we are in God or we are outside of Christ, whether or not He is still sovereign and in control, we are not our own. And knowing that, domineering over anyone or anything is sinful, especially in the marriage relationship, especially in dating relationships. When we domineer over women, it is sinful and we need to repent of that sin and you may need to repent of that sin today. A dominating relationship does not reflect Christ. A dominating relationship is abusive. And it can be verbally, emotionally, physically, spiritually. We should not be in dominating relationships. This is not the way that God has designed us. I mean, let's just look at an example of how Jesus did this. How did Jesus live? There's a story in Mark 5. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture where Jesus is on his way to go heal this man's daughter. And as he's walking, this woman, who is on the outside of society because she is bleeding, stops him, grabs him by the hem of his coat, and she is healed. And in the midst of this crowd of people, in the midst of chaos, Jesus stops and says, who touched my coat? Who touched my coat? Now, he could have been in a hurry in this moment. He could have literally looked at this woman and said, woman, you are in my way. Woman, you are slowing me down. Woman, you are off the mission. Woman, get out of my face. But he said, who touched my coat? He stopped. Who touched my coat? And that woman came forward, and because of her faith, she was healed. He didn't freak out. He didn't domineer over her. He showed her grace. He showed her forgiveness. In the same way, husbands, show forgiveness to your wives when you come home. In the same way, show grace to your children when you come home. You may have had a long day at the office. You may have had a long day out just working. You may have had just a, a day full of hobbies, and now you're coming home and you're tired and you're frustrated. One of the greatest things that you can do for your family is repent to your wife in front of your children and say, hey, hey babe, like, I'm sorry. Like, I, I didn't mean to act that way to you. I didn't mean to talk down to you. I didn't mean to dominate over you. Dominating autonomy is one of the results of the sin fleshing itself out in a man's life. Secondly, we have self-centered passivity. If you look down, if you look back at Genesis chapter 3, there's some moments where Adam really fleshes out this passivity inside his life. 
The first thing you want to look at is if you look at verse 6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Who was with her? It wasn't like she took a trek across the Garden of Eden saying, Oh, Adam, where are you? No, that wasn't what happened. She literally turned to her husband who was with her and he ate. He ate of the same tree. He was literally letting his wife talk to a snake. Husbands, your wife comes in from the garden this summer and says, Hey, I was talking to this snake outside. First off, go kill that snake, and two, get her help. But in all reality, this is not just any snake. This is the snake. This is Satan in the flesh himself right here deceiving Eve. And now we have sin. And Adam didn't stop her. The serpent was literally twisting the words of God to Eve. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Of course God said that. And Eve echoes back what her husband and what God had told her. But then the serpent says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is every sin now. You will be like God. You will have autonomy. And Eve was deceived. But her husband didn't stop the snake. The husband did not have headship and he was passive. And he didn't correct the snake. He didn't. He should have said, the snake, hey, serpent, God said this. But instead, he fell short of that. And he was passive. And he let his wife get deceived. And then if you go and see, what did he do? He went and hid. He went and hid. He was ashamed. He was passive and they're addressing the sin that was in his heart. Instead of running to God and confessing his sin, he went and hid from God. And then he blamed his wife. The man said in verse 12, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. This self-centered passivity fleshed itself out mostly in Adam. But here's the thing, we love to blame Eve. Man, if Eve wouldn't have ate that fruit, man, if Eve wouldn't have done that, who does get blamed in the scriptures for sin? Romans 5, 14. Yes, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. Adam is the one who is blamed because Adam did not lead his wife well. Adam's sin was of passivity. He was selfish and he tried to look out for his own self instead of looking out for his family. This fleshed itself out really well with me in December of 2018 when my son was born and I stayed at home for two weeks just to get back into the rhythm of things and I came back to work and those of you who had a newborn you know exactly what I'm talking about you know that kind of tired that when you have a newborn there's no other tired like newborn tired and so what ends up happening was I would stay up all night those first few weeks And then I would come to the office, and I would come home, and I would be dead exhausted. But here's the thing. My wife would stay at home with this baby, and she would be dead exhausted as well. 
But sometimes I would come in and I would kick back in my chair and I would watch TV and I would be passive. I would not uh, pursue my wife and pursue her heart. I would not want to go in there and even maybe change a diaper because I was tired. I was being passive. I was not showing headship in the home. And I got really convicted of this one day because I was listening to this message from a pastor and he said, men, you're going to come home tired, but you need to ex- just exhaust yourselves for your wife and for your children and go to bed tired that night. Go to bed exhausting yourselves over the glory of God and over your wife and your children. And I remember I went to my wife and I repented to her. I said, I said babe, like, I'm sorry. Like, I've, I've not pursued you well. I've not you know, done this well. I've, I've been lazy. And now that's just one example of passivity even in my own heart, but what about... In, our lives, inside our bodies, life, inside in your life? Have you been passive in addressing sin in your life? Are you trying to hide from God? Are you trying to hide your internet history? Are you trying to hide what's going on behind closed doors? Are you trying to hide what's going on at your office? Or how about this? Are you being passive and pointing others to Jesus? Are you being passive in the way that Adam was, who did not point his wife to the Lord. Instead, he pointed to himself. He tried to save himself. And in that, what happens is, is that we get driven deeper and deeper into that relational divide between our wife and others. Men, do not let self-centered passivity drive a wedge between you and your wife, you and your children, and you and your God Put off that sin and live like Jesus. Jesus was never passive in the scriptures. He was never passive in the scriptures. Jesus aggressively pursued others. So much so that he gave his own life for us. For an intentionality. When he prayed to the Father Father, not my will, but your will be done. He did not say, God, listen, I'm not going to that cross. No, he said, listen, I know that pain's coming. I know that hurt's coming. And if possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. That should be our prayers, brothers. Not my will, but your will be done. We should live our lives for the glory of God and for our wives, and for our children, and not be passive. Not be passive. The last struggle that is here is a struggle in work. He says this, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth of you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. Into dust you shall return. The struggle and work is still fleshed out today. I mean, when you know something at work doesn't go the way that you want it to, when that money doesn't come through, when that relationship divide at work fleshes itself out, When something gets broken at home, thorns and thistles are all around us and they are there because of sin. We need to notice that work was in the garden beforehand. Work was in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2. Man was to tend 
to the garden. I heard one pastor say that men and women were meant to be gardeners. They were meant to take care of the garden. But they neglected their duty. And the garden can no longer be taken care of by gardeners who can neglect their duty. And man did not lead his wife well. And now they will get removed from the garden. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam, for his wife, garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest you reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They have now been expelled from their home to a world full of sin, to a world that we still live in. So men's struggles are dominating autonomy, self-centered passivity, and a struggle to work. Struggles and work. So is there any hope? I'm here to tell you that there is hope this morning. Man's redemption, man's purpose is in headship. Man's struggles is sin. But man's redemption is found in living like Jesus. Now to live like Jesus, you must give your heart to Jesus. So if there's somebody out there listening right now that doesn't know Jesus, you can give your heart to Christ right now. You can submit your autonomy that you feel that you have, which is so false. You have no autonomy. You can submit yourself to Christ and be saved. And once you are saved, you can live like Jesus. And when you were living like Jesus, you were modeling your life after the one who created you, after the God who took on human flesh as a man and gave his life for us. This is what Colossians 1, 15-20 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is who you emulate, brothers, when you live like Jesus. You emulate the one who is holding all things together. The one who brought order to our chaos. When man has headship and he has dominion, biblically he is bringing order to chaos. Jesus brought order to our chaos and now we can live like him. Now how can we live like Jesus? There are two applications. His selflessness. This is what 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was the most selfless man to ever live, so much so that he laid down his life for us, brothers. Men, lay down your lives. For your family, lay down your lives for your church, lay down your lives for your work, lay down your lives for Jesus Christ, selflessly. When you are selfless, 
with our wives, when we are selfless with our children, with our work, when we are selfless on the ball field or selfless any other place, we are emulating Christ. Not when we're selfless on our own behalf so that we can try to manipulate our wives or try to get something out of our children so we can get some kind of pat on the back. No, when we are selfless for Christ, we expect nothing in return. We are giving our lives up for our wives and for our children. We are selfless for them. And we can be selfless for Christ. Secondly, his sacrifice. In Ephesians 5, I read this earlier. He says this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves him wives, loves his wife loves himself. Here's the thing, brothers. We can flesh out living like Christ by laying down our lives sacrificially for our wives and for our families. This is one way to exemplify that headship that Christ exemplifies. Growing up, I was always told that relationships were give or take, give and take. That you have to give and you have to sacrifice. And there's this take aspect, though. And here's the thing with Jesus Christ, there is no give or take. With Jesus Christ, there is 100% give, there is no take. So men, if you want to live out Christ-like relationship, if you want to live out biblical headship in your home, this is the way to do it. 100% give of yourself all the time. Jesus never took. He always gave. And you could do the same with your wife, the same with your children, the same with your extended family, the same with your work, the same with your church. Give yourself wholly and fully so that you can live out your life for Christ. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says this. This is Paul writing, I appeal to their, you to therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You can live out this relationship, this headship relationship, by being a living sacrifice for Christ. By being a living sacrifice for the one who gave himself up for you. You can lay down your life because Jesus laid down his life for you. So men, lay down your life for this cause. Sacrifice your pride. Sacrifice your time. Selflessly give yourself to your wife and to your children. And in the coming weeks, I know that we got some weird things going on with this virus going around. You have an opportunity to lead your family well to worship Jesus from the comforts of your home. And some of you may be wondering... I don't know how to do that. Some of you may be saying, I, I haven't read the Bible in so long. Brothers, open up your Bible. Take one verse. Read that over your family and pray with them. 
and just work your way towards being more like Jesus. One thing that we like to ask in the leadership of this church is, what is God saying in this passage and what can I do about it? So take a passage of scripture and ask those questions. God, what are you saying to us in this passage and what are we going to do about it? And this is what I'm going to add to that as me and Thomas were talking about just a few weeks. How can we help you do that? How can we help you live out those things? How can we help you be more like Jesus? So men, live in biblical headship. Lead like Jesus. And the way you do this is by living like Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for being a God who is in control. We live in uncertain days. But God, you are in control. As Christians, it is not our call to freak out. It is not our call to panic. It is our call to live like Jesus. And what better way than this fleshed out than husbands and fathers and who are listening right now, who are going to be listening later, in our church, in this nation, all around the world, living like Jesus as a non-anxious presence who is resting in the presence of God. Father, I pray for the men in this room. I pray for the men who are listening over live stream that we will live like Jesus. That we will not be passive with the sin in our lives. That we will not try to live on our own in some kind of false autonomy. That we will realize we were bought with a price and that we will live like Jesus. Father, let us live that out well. All the men and women who are just gathered in their homes today, let us live like Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church. Feel free to share this with anyone you meet, and we pray that this sermon helped you to be more like Jesus, as 12th Street seeks to be a place where we can find forgiveness for the past and hope for the future.